And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Hockey Show. back welcome to a thursday edition of the athletic hockey show as always it's ian mendes sean McAdoo with you uh for the next hour or so we got a lot to get to we'll we'll bounce around the nhl we'll talk about sean's uh, latest uh, Connor bedard tank index we'll, we'll we'll chat with jesse granger for a little granger things we've got some fun mailbag questions this week in hockey history i'll tell you sean let, let's kick this off um imagine it's september or october so go back four months or whatever um, we got Seattle and Boston on Thursday night. Uh, I don't think anybody would have really circled that game four or five months ago saying, you know, this is going to be a, a real fun, interesting, entertaining game. But I think that's where we're at, right? Seattle-Boston on the schedule here seems pretty good. And to me, I don't know. If, if the Kraken, who are just rolling at even strength, rolling on the road, if they go into Boston and win on Thursday, how much does that change your view of the Seattle Kraken? It, it would continue to nudge me in the direction of of buying into this team. I was slow on the uptake, uh, which is is not not for the first time <laughs> yeah. uh, for me. But uh, no, and people who read my weekly ratings know that I tend to, you know, I like to during the season, I'm kind of conservative. I kind of I move a little slower than some, you know, there, there's some power rankings out there where the the Avalanche lose two games in a row and they drop out of the top 10. And I'm, I'm sort of saying like, hold on, you know, it, teams can have a week, two weeks, a month uh, of outlier performance. And, and uh, you know, I want to go a little bit slow and steady. So it took me a while because I, I was like, I would think most people, I had Seattle down at the bottom of the league this year 
after last year. They were 30th last year as an expansion team. Didn't do, you know, they, they improved certainly in the offseason, but not not to the point that you, uh, you know, you suddenly thought they were a legitimate contender. I certainly didn't. Uh, and even as the season's gone on, you know, I've, I've sort of been, okay, well, you know, but, but who are they playing? But yeah, okay, you know, lots of, lots of buts. Um, and yet here we are. They're record-wise one of the very best teams in the Western Conference. They're playing great five-on-five, five, as you said. They've won six in a row. And, and the, the big thing for me is, you know, you talked about you know, September, October, somebody tells you a Seattle-Boston big game and, and Seattle's doing well. I would have said, wow, okay, the goaltending. Goaltending must have flipped a switch. And that happens yeah. in the NHL. Every year, there's some team where the goaltending just gets significantly better, not even for any real reason other than it's goaltending. Goaltending's weird. It's unpredictable. And that's what triggers the turnaround. And that's not what's happening in Seattle. And, you know, I know if you're a Seattle fan, you wish the goaltending was better. But as far as this being real and sustainable, the fact that the goaltending hasn't been great is, in a twisted sort of way, good news. Um, I also did not see Boston being this good. I, I wasn't quite as as nervous about them as some were. I think there were, you know, there, there was a lot of, um, I guess I would say that th- there was a, a, a real urge out there to get some new teams into the mix in, in the East after last year where we do the eight playoff teams in mid-November. And I think a lot of people were focusing on Boston as being the team that might fall. There was a new coach, uh, you know, they... they they had a bunch of injuries to start the season, at least early in the offseason. We didn't even know Patrice Bergeron was coming back. We didn't know about David Krejci. Um, I, I didn't think they were going to fall out of the playoffs. I certainly didn't think they would be on pace to have a historically great season. And I, I certainly didn't think we'd be halfway in the season and they'd be unbeatable on home ice. Have not lost in regulation yet. If the Seattle Kraken go into Boston and beat them in regulation and snap the streak tonight, uh, I mean, biggest game in Seattle Kraken history, for sure. Uh, biggest win would be. And I really do think that would that would get a lot of us to have to snap in and say, okay, this this Seattle Kraken team, this isn't a great story. This isn't like, oh, hey, good for them. Now get into the playoffs and lose in the first round, and it's still a success. This is a team we actually have to take seriously. Okay, so, you know, along those lines, then which of these two teams is out, uh, I guess, out kicking or outperforming your preseason thought of where they could be. Is it Seattle or Boston that you're like, wow, I, cause I, th- I kind of think maybe it's Boston, right? Yeah, boy. I mean, as, I as far think. as if, if it's places in the standings, then it's Seattle, right? Because this is a team that I, I thought would probably be bottom five. Uh, and instead they are kicking around, you know, they're, they're knocking on the door of top five. They're not, you know, they're not quite there, but, um, they're, they're close to that. Uh, but, I mean, I, I th- there was no circumstances where I looked at Boston coming into this year and said, oh, oh boy, that 2019 Lightning team better look out. Those 70s Habs teams better look out because this could be <laughs> right. legitimately one of the teams. I mean, they, they're on pace to not just hit 60 wins, but blow by 60 wins in the cap era, in the parity era. It's, uh, you know, it's it's been uh, phenomenal. And... um it could not have imagined really. I, I don't think I could have imagined that scenario. Again, with Seattle, I could have said, okay, goaltending goes crazy. Uh, boy, you know, PDO can do wild things. Maybe this, uh, you know, everything goes right for them. 
Maybe I could have twisted my own arm and talked myself into that. I, I don't think I could have seen an 850 points percentage uh, from any team in the league, let alone a Boston team that a lot of people were getting ready to write off. Now, I think you can make an argument that the two head coaches in this game, Jim Montgomery for uh, Boston, Dave Haxtell for Seattle, they might be your front runners for the Jack Adams. I'll tell you why I might might go Haxtell a little bit, and, and you brought this up. Usually when we talk about a Jack Adams winner, we can directly tie it to his goaltending. In fact, I'd love to see the numbers on Jack Adams winners and mm-hmm. the correlation with save percentage or Vesna Trophy finalists or whatever. And It would be very, very strong. Yeah. Seattle's got an 891 save percentage. Martin Jones, if you just looked at it and you were like, oh, Martin Jones is 19-5-3, you might be like, oh, wow, he's having a great year. He's got an 894 save percentage, allowing almost three goals a game. And so I kind of look at this and think, and because Seattle's been so good at even strength, it's not like, you know, you think of last year, take a a team like the Rangers, and we're like, oh, man, you're just riding Shesterkin and a a crazy power play. And you're like, ah, that's Mm -hmm. probably not you know, coaching to some degree. And I'm looking at this Seattle team and Sean, they're so good at five on five. Like I covered a game of theirs this week. They came into Ottawa and they scored eight even strength goals, not a single power play goal. And I, I was just blown away by the, and, the, and now mm-hmm. they got Eli Tolvin in there. And you know, there's like 20 fan bases that are just screaming at their general manager, right? Like how did you mm-hmm. let Tolvin in? Uh, go through waivers and not put a claim. He's look, he's, I think he's got six points in six games, right? Like, like they're just, I feel like Haxtell would get my vote for Jack Adams if we're having the vote here at the kind of quasi halfway point in the season. Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd certainly be up there. I mean, it, it feels to me, and, and I, I, I've written this a couple of times, it feels to me like we've already decided that Jim Montgomery is going to get the Jack Adams. In Boston, and I say we, I mean, we're not the ones, we, the media are not the ones who vote on it, but you're, I've seen more than a few references to it already being his award and he's done a fantastic job. And certainly it's, it's an amazing story. Um, you, you, if you, if you like a good story, the Jim Montgomery coming back, getting his chance, uh, to redeem himself and, and being coach of the year, year one would be fantastic. Um, that said, I don't, you know, I, I think certainly Dave Haxtell as a case. I think Lindy Ruff as a case. I would say that the guy that Jim Montgomery replaced, Bruce Cassidy, going into Vegas on a team that's loaded with talent, but we all looked and said the goaltending's what's going to take that team down after Robin Leonard went down. I think he deserves some consideration. Um, but it is, it's 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 a tough conversation for me because both Lindy Ruff and Dave Haxtell are two guys I did not buy into at all. At all heading into this season, I I wrote in my preseason predictions with with the Devils. I said, let's try to figure out what game Lindy Ruff gets fired and Andrew Burnett tags in because that's uh, it felt inevitable to me. And of course, a month later, um, you know, not not just me, but the fans were all saying sorry, Lindy, because uh, he's done a fantastic job. Dave Haxtell, man, I I I was not. Blown away by what he did in Philadelphia. He came to my team, the Maple Leafs, as an assistant. Didn't at no point did I feel like, oh man, this guy's a this guy needs Genius. to get back behind the bench as a yeah. full, you know, as a he was he was on special teams. The special teams weren't particularly great. When the Seattle Kraken hired him, I remember just going like, really? 
pick. Like, I wouldn't even have thought he would have been on the radar for that team. And then last year, the team's not very good. Um, and and yeah, expansion team, you know, certainly, uh, you know, our expectations were were probably unreasonably high, but they were awful. And again, like, you know, as Lindy Ruff, I'm looking at it going, yeah, there you go. There, there's, I mean, part of it's coaching and you got to, uh, you know, Ron Francis picked the wrong guy. Well, now we're sitting here halfway through the season and the wrong guy uh, <laughs> might be the Jack Adams winner or the wrong guy might beat out my other wrong guy. Um, uh, they might both be finalists. The one thing I will say with Seattle, you look at their numbers and they, yes, they're great five on five. They're scoring a ton. Um, they're overcoming the goaltending. They're fun to watch, by the way. If you're, especially if you're out east and you don't watch this team a lot, they're high scoring. They're high event. Like th- this is, don't don't sleep on this team. This is, uh, you know, because because that's the other piece of it, right? You would have said, okay, well, it's an expansion team. They're not very good. If they're going to win, they're they're probably grinding out a bunch of boring two to one games, and they're they're not doing that. Uh, so I, I I love that they're having this success. The one thing I'll say, as a team, they're shooting. Almost 12.5%. Yeah, it's got to regress. Now, you look at that roster. Now, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, to look at some of these rosters that are just packed with top-tier offensive talent. And, you know, when they start getting north of 10%, you start saying, okay, you know what? That that might be sustainable. You know, league average is is 10%. Is this a better than, you know, if, if Tampa or Toronto or Colorado, when they're healthy is shooting, you know, closer to 11. Okay, you know what? It's a good team. They got some some snipers. Uh, you look at this Seattle team and you go, okay, it, do we really feel like this roster, as, as talented as they are and as, as, you know, they've as much as they have some good pieces in place and they're well coached and the system is working, do we really feel like this is sustainably a, a 12-plus shooting percentage team? And if the answer is no then you would expect it to regress. And, and again, regression means it, it comes back towards average. It doesn't mean it's, it has to swing all the way to the other side, but it starts to regress. The goals aren't quite there anymore. And next thing you know, it's the second half. And maybe we're looking at going, man, what's wrong with the Kraken? What, what happened that they're suddenly struggling a little bit? And it may just be that, you know what, the, the puck wasn't going in every time the way it was for the first half. I, I'm not... I don't want to use the word luck. I know that's the four-letter word nobody likes in hockey. Um, and it and and for good reason, because it makes it sound like you're just sort of throwing your hands up and 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 not giving full credit. But it's it's not, I don't think it's sustainable that they can keep going at 12%. So you're gonna see that come down. You have to. And if you don't, and they go through the whole season with this roster and shoot 12, go ahead and give the Jack Adams to Dave Haxtell. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. Like, the, and and I know Dom in his latest column has it touches on Seattle's shooting percentage, and you know it, it is it's an outlier right now, and we'll see if it regresses down to kind of nine percent uh, or kind of where, where where most of the teams hover. And look, we got the All Star Game coming up. We're talking about coaches, and we know that Jim Montgomery, Pete DeBoer, um, uh, Rod Brindamore, and Bruce Cassidy will be mm-hmm. behind the benches of their respective teams because they're the points percentage leaders of their divisions. At the, at the halfway point. Now, this week, Sean, the NHL is allowing fans to jump onto Twitter and kind of with a combination of Twitter votes and um, online voting, the rest of the players for the All-Star game, will the, the rest of the rosters will be filled out. Here's my question. Do you think fans should be the ones who choose the coaches for the All-Star game? And maybe more importantly, 
if if they allowed us to do this, would we have all just figured out a way to get John Tortorella at the All-Star game? <laughs> yeah. After that quote, absolutely. Yeah. And that's probably why they don't do it. Yeah. Because, oh boy, you could just imagine uh, uh, that stuff. Uh, I mean, maybe they should. I, I don't mind the system the way it is now. I mean, let's be honest. We don't even need coaches at the All-Star game. We could, we could, it's a nice honor for them, I suppose, but especially with the, the way that the games are, you know, the, the three on three now, you don't even need somebody running lines out there. You, we could give them all the week off. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's a good, uh, uh, it's a good mix. This, I mean, it's a fun, fun story because three of those guys basically all swap jobs. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, it kind of becomes this, uh, you know, this, this three way, um, trade that went down and then, and then Rod Brindamore, I don't know who, who would get voted in if we, if we voted for coaches, like, just like, is there such a, is there a popular coach out there? Is there anywhere? Or would it just be whoever has the biggest, most online fan base would, would win? I feel like Brindamore would be the one guy that would get a lot of support from, I, w- from all around the league. Would John Cooper? I think Cooper's reasonably. Votes? Like he's reasonably yeah. popular. He seems like a fun guy. Mm-hmm. Team is pretty successful or very successful. Um, yeah. He'd, he'd be up there. I, I feel like Rick Bonus. I mean, at this point, kind of the the elder statesman, but he's, uh, you know, he's he's a guy that that a lot of people uh, like. I, I could see him doing well. Yeah, and then oh, it's, and it's then and point. then Daryl Sutter, right? I mean, just oh, yeah, of the, course, yeah. uh, just yeah. just for the million laughs, you got to get him in there, I guess. Oh man, uh, hey, listen, I, I want to talk about your your column you wrote this week. It is the latest kind of tanking index where you use a very scientific formula. Mm-hmm. To determine which teams uh, very, might r- very very mathematical, scientific. yeah, very and it's and, and it's tough. Like Dom called me up, he was like, "Can you explain this to me?" Yeah, explain was, this. Model know, I went through it, and he just went, it, "It's too complicated. I can't handle it." So, yeah, um, it is. Uh, you know, you know me, and the I'm, I've always been a big math guy. Yeah. So yeah, listen for for the people uh, that are listening to this that haven't read your column. Essentially, you put together, you look at teams' goaltending. What's their motivation for tanking? Do they want to be sellers? You put up, you know, you kind of add up the scores, mm-hmm. and you create the tank index. Now, yeah, and 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 to be clear, this is the tank index. I am measuring who is in the best position to to get significantly worse. Over the remainder of the season, right. not necessarily who's going to finish last. I'm not just trying to predict that. We've got the standings for that. But if, it, in as I as I always say, as I always preface these things, in an alternate universe where tanking existed, because Gary Bettman has assured exactly. us that in the NHL nobody tanks. But if anybody did, you know, it's it's one thing to say I want to tank. It's another thing to actually be able to do it. So I'm looking at you know where are you in the standings now? It does matter. I mean, if you're if you're 18th. You got a long way to go to to tank down to to great odds. As far as being a seller, do you have anyone on the roster that you could move that's actually going to make you worse? You know, like I, I don't care that you could move your sixth defenseman and get a fifth round pick. That's nice, but that's not going to move the needle. Do you have somebody on your first line that could conceivably get moved and, and make you worse? Do you have the bad goaltending? And then the big one is the motivation. Like, are you actually willing to do this? Well, your, are your fans behind you? Is the media behind you? Is your owner behind you? Because if he's not, it, none of the rest of it matters. Um, and then I add it all up uh, with a score that I, I pull out of the air. Okay. So before we talk about some of those potential pieces being moved, because I, I do, I think that to me is the most interesting part of this uh, exercise is looking at all the potential, uh, you know, trade chips. 
The one team that really surprised me on there was St. Louis. I like, yeah. can you explain to me what are the St. Nope. Louis Blues this year? Nope. Nope. No, I cannot. You can't I don't or even you know. Won't. I, didn't even, I, I cannot. No, I have I have been very clear on this. I yeah. do not know what's going on in St. Louis. The the last time I did this, this is the second edition of the Tank Index. First one was mid-November. And they had at that point they had started the season three and oh, then they lost, I think, eight in a row. And they were in the middle of a seven-game win streak. So I was already confused. And and since then, it's not it's not getting any clearer. Um, they're they're up, they're down, they look fantastic on some nights, they look rotten on others. Um, they're they're still only a few years removed from a Stanley Cup, a lot of the same pieces, and yet they, there are some nights they look like the worst team in the league. And there's some nights where they look like one of the best, and sometimes it's both. You know, sometimes you get one version for half a game and and another for for the rest. And you know, they've got a good record. I I think out of all the teams that I listed, the Blues had the best record of the bunch. Um, which means they've got a, a little ways to go. But they are a very interesting one to me because uh, you know, you talk about the the motivation to look, they're right in the playoff race. So on in in for any other team, you'd say, I mean, as, as long as you're sniffing around the playoffs, you don't you're not gonna move guys. But Doug Armstrong has done it before. Doug Armstrong traded uh, Paul Stastny. He traded Kevin Shattenkirk uh, in years where they were pushing for the playoffs, but he still had these guys. And and in this case, the all eyes are on Vladimir Tarasenko and Ryan O'Reilly, who are both hurt right now, but are expected back to be healthy but well before the trade deadline. Um, it's going to be interesting. What do you do? What do you do if you're five points out of the playoffs? What do you do if you're, you know, what what's the line? Six, seven points where you feel like you can still get in? Uh, or do you start chasing, in the case of the Blues, you're chasing small increases, small margins in lottery odds. You're not going to get to dead last. You're not going to have that those 20% odds. Um, but a couple losses might be the difference between 3 and 5% or 7 or 8 Is that worth strategizing over? Uh, you, you think no. Then you watch the World Juniors and you see Connor Bedard and you go, yeah. you know what? Uh, maybe, maybe it absolutely is. So... You know, as I'm going through the list of teams, I'm suddenly seeing, and, and, and even, even if the Blues aren't a seller and Tarasenko and O'Reilly aren't kind of on the, the list, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a few names here of, of mm-hmm. players who get traded. I'm going to ask you, of all these players, who's going to fetch the biggest return or who's going to be like the most valuable piece, okay? You got Bo Horvat in Vancouver. You got Jake Chikrin in Arizona. It feels like both of those guys are going to get moved. There's been a lot of rumblings and stuff swirling around them. You also have Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. I think Kane would be the, the, the bigger prize there, but certainly there's, there's some thought to be had that those two could be on the move. And then there's Timo Meyer. And as you mm-hmm. point out in your, in your column, look, Sharks don't have to do anything with Timo Meyer. He's still under team control beyond this season, but if you're going to tank this sucker, you would conceivably think about moving Timo Meyer. So, if you looked at all these names, Meyer and Horvat and Chikrin and Kane, who could potentially, who do you think is the most valuable piece that will get you the most assets back in return? Is it Chikrin? Out of that group, man, it, I mean, it might be Chikrin in the sense that he's, he's youngish, he's not a rental, so you're getting him for a couple years, yeah. he, he's, on a, he's on a decent contract. And and the fact that he's not a rental helps in two ways because it 
it, it, it in theory should make him more attractive to teams that are out there because you're not just getting him for a few months. But also, as we saw last year, it allows Arizona to say, hey, we don't have to move this guy. This is not a case of if we don't trade him, we lose him in the summer for nothing. Now, Jacob Chikrin, I think, has has had just about enough of, of being dangled on the trade market. And he's he's kind of said, look, I, I would like a move. But if push comes to shove and the, nobody's meeting the asking price, in theory, Arizona can at least bluff that, all right, you know what, guys, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you in the summer. We'll talk to you at the draft. And you just you 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 just will miss out on Jacob Chickram for your upcoming playoff run. In theory, he's probably the guy. I there is still a part of me that says Patrick Kane is is going to be the one that uh, you know because he's he's got the pedigree, the name value, the, the three Stanley Cup rings. That some team is going to say, "Hey, if we're going to go all in, let's go all in That's on a Hall of guy. Famer." Yeah. That's the guy we're going to go all in on. And and then obviously, you know, Bo, Bo Horvat's having the best year out of any of them. But man, it's such a mess in Vancouver. You just you just wonder what they're what they're even going to do and and how much they're going to be able to to extract. Um I think some team will convince themselves that he's their guy. And and Ryan O'Reilly too. To go back to the Blues, I really feel like here's a guy with a con smite, right? A guy with the with the Stanley Cup. How many teams be looking at at him going, you know what? Boy, if we could slot him in as our number two or even number three center, that yeah. that's the piece that puts us over the top. It, it it could in theory be a really a real monster trade deadline. And I'm 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 fascinated to see, you know, how the guys slot in, especially those forwards. Like who's the first to go? Who's the you know, who's the guy that uh, you know, is is Horvat your backup plan if you don't get O'Reilly, or is it the other way around, or is it Kane? And Jonathan Taves, you know, if if he agrees to waive his no trade, same same as Patrick Kane. I mean, the he he's not having a, a great year, and he's not the Jonathan Taves that he was a few years ago. But he's still this is this is the captain, a three time Stanley Cup captain. This guy's lifted the cup three times. Um, the leadership and, and and all of that. Some GM would absolutely talk themselves into, hey, this guy's going to walk into our dressing room and make everybody better, regardless of what he does on the ice. So I, I do feel like, you know, we we do hit January very often, and we start talking about all the guys, could all the big names could be moved, and then half Nothing of them happens. don't get moved. Yeah. But it, it does feel this year like the pieces are lining up to have something big happen. St. Louis is having a disappointing year, so you think they were going to move those guys. Bo Horvat... You know, there's this push in in Vancouver saying, like, we we can't keep bringing this core back. So, you know, what are we going to do? San Jose with Timo Meyer, like, he's a great player. But how many eight-year deals are you going to give to players who are not even getting you into the playoffs right now or even getting you all that close? Um, It it could be really fascinating how it all shakes out. Chikrin should be the big prize. But man, part of me thinks if if Kane is willing to go, that he might be the guy that uh, that gets the the big return. Yeah, and look, it it, it it's going to be fascinating because so many potential teams that might want to nudge themselves towards tanking, maybe they make the move sooner than March third. Maybe they make it. That's ex- uh, that's b- exactly before, it too, right? Yeah, like because look, most teams in late January, early February have essentially a bye week married with the all-star break, meaning mm-hmm. it's, it's just a natural time, right? To pause, kind of reflect, take stock like that. That to me is the next kind of pressure point or like, I wouldn't be it, shocked if 
one or two of these guys, the Chikrins, whatever, are moved at some point between now and let's say like the 10th and, of February. And then what happens, right? Because we, we, you know, we've, we've talked about this, how the, the playbook here is you wait until the deadline because the cap hit is lower and teams are in theory more desperate and teams know how much they, what they need to do down the stretch. But there's always kind of this game of chicken between the contenders where it's like, all right, if I, I'm, I'm fighting with you for a playoff spot, if you make your move two weeks early, can I afford to wait for two weeks or do I need to keep pace? Because in those two weeks, you might get enough points that ends up being the difference by the end of the year. Uh, now we could see the exact same thing for the other contenders, which is the contenders for uh, for Connor Bedard, the contenders for those lottery odds uh, and and all of these blue chip players at the top. Um, you know, you, you can be sitting there. I, I'm sure, you know, Kyle Davidson... Well, he's he's maybe a bad example because we the reports are that they have yet to sit down with Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane and and have that conversation. But you know, let's say they do at some point soon. Maybe you're sitting there going, "I'm going to wait till the deadline." Um, but then Arizona goes and moves Jacob Chikrin at the end of January. Oh, that's one of the teams that's chasing us, quote unquote, yeah. for dead last. And boy, they, you take Chikrin off that ride, they don't they they barely got anybody, and then you you start to get a little bit concerned if you're, um, you know, if you see Timo, Timo Meyer get moved, does that make a team like a Vancouver or a St. Louis go, man, boy, you know, we could lose, you know, the, these teams that are kind of not in the running for dead last. Cause I, I feel like Chicago's largely got that maybe not wrapped up, but the big favorite, but some of these teams, I mean, you're, you're talking two points could be the difference between having the eighth worst record in the league and the fourth worst. Uh, and that's a big jump in your odds. So uh, it's it's going to be fascinating. It's kind of like who's going to blink first, who's going to make the first move, and then what's it worth to you? Is it if if I think that if I wait for the deadline, I could squeeze another fourth round pick out of this team? Is that really worth it? Versus you know what, I'm going to make the move right now and get worse, and and I, I lose the fourth round pick, but I also lose those four points in the standings that maybe I would have earned over the next couple months. You know, one team we didn't talk about, because I don't think they really have a ton of assets to move that would fetch that type of return, would be Montreal. And just before we bring Jesse Granger in, I, I thought this was an interesting story. Eric Engels, who covers the Canadians for Sportsnet, um, passed this nugget along, Sean, saying that the Habs, uh, and they're paying for this, the team is paying for this. Um, I think it's eight players uh, who don't have French in their background are taking French lessons, uh, paid for by the hockey team. And like, first of all, are you like, I'm kind of surprised that this hasn't been done more and maybe it has been done in the past. They just haven't publicized it. But, you know, mm -hmm. eight guys taking French lessons at the same time, I think is interesting. The other part is, uh, if you are the instructor, are you upping <laughs> your rate a little bit? You're like, uh, the Montreal Canadians are looking for a tutor. Like if you're charging whatever per hour, you're bumping that up a little, aren't you? Okay. I mean, first of all, you're, you're saying you, I mean, if it's me and I'm the French teacher, I'm, I'm doing it for free and then I'm screwing with them. I'm telling like, oh, you know, man. uh, you know, I'm telling Cole Caulfield, like, yeah, you know, uh, how do you say the fans are great tonight? Uh, je demande un trade is, is how you say that. And you <laughs> let him go out to the media. I'd be messing with him, man. Uh, this is, this story hurts. Uh, I'm, it's giving me flashbacks to like, those high school French lessons and, uh, geez, we even had to take one at the university level and it's, uh, I never did well in those courses and uh, I can only imagine somebody coming in flat. I, I put it this way. I don't think they're going to, 
I don't think anyone's getting uh, fluent French out of this, but it's not bad. You know what? As long as they learn how to say thank you, Ben Chirot, uh, I think they're going to be all set yeah. for the rest of the year. Merci, Ben Chirot, I believe. Ooh, is what, uh, look at you. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Real quick, though. Do you remember when Randy Cunnyworth was yes. briefly the Canadians coach? Did he not take like Rosetta Stone, like the online? Like, <laughs> it was something like that. Okay, it might have been. Here, so here's my question. Why didn't they just hire a tutor for him? Why was this guy using an online program? You know what? That's a good question. But wait, wait, you're a coach. When are you doing the tutoring? Like, I mean, the, these guys, they're working 18 hours a day yeah. during the during the season. But yeah, oh, that was a rough one. Poor Randy Cunningworth. That, yeah. that they didn't like that he didn't speak French. And he tried. God bless him. He tried. Uh, but it was, it was, and again, like I'm saying this as someone, I don't think I ever got better than the C in any French course I ever took. But even I was watching him going, oh, dude, that's, that's not good. That's, uh, that's not how you do it. Like this is. Oh man, I'm I'm just picturing like Nick Suzuki up in front of the class doing his book report on the Little Prince, uh, just uh, just absolutely just winging it, hoping nobody asks any questions. Come on, guys, just help me out here. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Time is always to bring in our pal, Jesse Granger, for a little segment we like to call Granger Things, brought to you by BetMGM, the exclusive betting partner with The Athletic. Uh, Jesse Granger, as we bring in, Sean and I were just talking about uh, having to relive, you know, in Canada, for a lot of students, you have to take French class at some point in elementary school. It's kind of like a mandatory thing. Did you ever did you ever study another language in the school system in the United States? Yeah, it, obviously in the U.S. it's more Spanish. Um, yeah, I I took three years of Spanish, and um, it it's been helpful at certain points in my life. I, I I had a job where I worked with a lot of Spanish speaking people, and it helped me. But now that I work in the NHL and I cover hockey players, I I regret so often that I didn't take French instead because I see the French reporters talking to the French hockey players, and they look like they're having so much more fun than I am. <laughs> <laughs> when I interview them in English and I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that. Um, yeah. So so I, I and I've forgotten probably 75 percent of the Spanish I learned in those three years. But uh, wish it had been French at this point. It is the worst, man. You you watch them talking French and you're just like you you're definitely getting something really good here. Right. That, I, that <laughs> yeah. I'm not getting like there's de- are you talking about? I just heard my name. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. They're all they're they're pointing at Jesse and they're they're, they're laughing. Jonathan <laughs> yeah. March yeah. so is laughing. Yes. Up. Yes, yeah. he's the he's the, the guy kid. that has the most fun in French. <laughs> yeah. Hey, like, now, what grades was that? High school that you were taking uh, 
Spanish or when when was that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, two years in high school and then one early in college. Um, and it was like one of those. I, I don't know if you're required or I think it is required to take at least one year. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to do one year, I might as well at least try to like actually learn it. Um, but I it was tough for me. I, I struggled with uh, with second language classes. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I would have been better at French. French seems harder. I'll tell you that. Like just pronouncing the words seems a lot harder than, than Spanish did. You're yeah. You're you know, it's and now. And what was this job that you had that you were possibly <laughs> having to toy around with a little bit of Spanish? I think. Yeah, we need I, to know that right out of high school while I was going to college, um, I drove a forklift in a warehouse um, for like three years, uh, before I, before I started bartending my way through college. Um, and, and it was a cool job. I got to drive a forklift around, uh, loaded and unloaded semi trucks, and then would put the pallets up into the, up into the, uh, the rafters. It was a cool job, but, uh, I, I was, I was like the youngest person there by like 10 years. I don't think anyone was, was close to my age. And, um, a, a lot of Spanish speaking people in there. So the, the three years and I was fresh out, like that was right when I was taking the three years. So that was at the peak of my Spanish speaking. Um, so it helped me out. It was fun. I did not know you knew how to drive a forklift. <laughs> Does yes. that require yeah. a license, a special license? It did at the time I had to get trained. Yeah. Please tell Have me you've driven fa- a forklift like since you fail. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not fail it. I was actually pretty good at driving the forklift. It was fun. Um, and I have, I have not driven one since it's been, how many years ago has that been? It's been like 10 years, I guess, since I, oh, since I drove please a forklift. Please tell me you at least keep the license current. Like, do you, you go in every five years and take the test again just to just in case? <laughs> no. Just in case. I do not have a forklift. I'm sorry, Sean. I can't help Dude, you the move. next time the three of us are lost in Montreal, maybe there's like a forklift sitting there. We can go, okay, you know. Yeah. Do, does anyone here know how to drive a forklift? And then- Hey, here we go. The only way to get Good to the NHL, to yeah. The only way to get to the NHL dinner is to actually yeah. lift you guys up with a forklift. Uh, yeah, it'd be the only way. Oh, Good. Is it, it like a secret? Like you know how like doctors, there'll be a doctor on a plane, and people, is there a doctor on the plane? Is it like one of your secret <laughs> dreams is to be walking into T-Mobile, and there's like some issue at the loading dock, and they're like, my God, no, no. there's somebody. Logan Thompson is a- pinned under yeah. this forklift. <laughs> None of us are licensed. Yeah. I could do it. I could do it. I wouldn't be legal. I mean, I'd, it'd be, it'd be, I think I'd be violating OSHA violations, uh, by, by operating the forklift, but I could do it. I, I, am pretty confident despite all the time it's been since I drove one, I'm pretty confident I could drive a forklift if I I needed to right now. William Carlson is pinned under a forklift and the only guy who has the key speaks Spanish. Is there anybody? (laughs) Jesse just drops his laptop bag. I've trained my whole life. My whole life. Led up to this moment. All right. As much as we'd love to get you on for forklift uh, tips, uh, the real reason we have you on is to chat about some uh, trends. And, and you know, as we hit the halfway point of the season, you're going to see a lot of columns and, and discussions about uh, NHL awards. And, and there's a couple that we want to look at here. Um, the Norris and the Vesna. And, and, and let's start with the Norris Trophy because Eric Carlson is having not only a renaissance year, but arguably a historic year. Like he's on pace for potentially a hundred point season. And so I think a lot of people are curious, like what are the odds on Eric Carlson uh, capturing a third Norris trophy right now? Yeah, it's, they're actually not as good as I expected them to be. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying, I don't, 
particularly like watching Sharks games. Um, I don't seek them out, but because they're the late game. <laughs> Neither do Sharks fans. Yeah, yeah. Because they're the late game and every night the Golden Knights aren't playing, I find myself they're, they're on the TV. And I will say my favorite part about watching Sharks games is just listening to ridiculous Eric Carlson stats like this. The the they come up with different stats for the broadcast every game and it blows my mind like uh, he's he's on pace. I think he's got 43 um, percent. He has participated in 43 percent of the Sharks goals and only one defenseman in the history of the sport has done that. And it was Bobby Orr. Um, anytime you're Yikes. you're putting the conversation with Bobby Orr, that's good. Uh, the other one that I saw on Twitter, <laughs> big head hockey, I'll give him credit. Uh, defenseman to have more points than Eric Carlson through this point in the season, Bobby Orr, Paul Coffey, Dick Clapper, Al McInnes, and Dennis Potvin. And the only one to do it while Carlson was alive was McInnes. And Carlson was one year old when that happened. So um, anyways, to get to the point, he has been spectacular. And then, so then I go and I'm like, you know what? This guy is probably, he's got to be minus 500 to win. Like, like Connor McDavid to win the heart is minus 350. I figured... Carlson's got to be that to win the Norris, not just because of how good he is, but he's got the name recognition. He's got everything. And I go on there and he's the third highest odds to win Norris. Kale McCarr and Rasmus Dahlin are both above him. Um, Now, it's not like you're getting crazy odds. He's four to one to win the Norris. But the fact that he isn't the favorite to win the Norris right now, and, and even those listeners out there that don't like betting, I think betting odds are fun just because they kind of give you, they, they put numbers on public perception. They give you a, a, a numerical mm-hmm. value for yeah, how we, yeah. yeah. Am I wrong in thinking that Carlson should be the runaway favorite to win the Norris right now? Like, are, it, maybe I'm off on this. You, you could talk me into Kale McCarr being right there with him. Um, but, I would not put Rasmus Dalin ahead of him, and I would think four to one feels very generous to me because part of this is, um, I mean, first of all, if he finishes the year with a hundred points, it's going to be very, very high. I know we joke about the writers just sort by points, and and that's it's not the case, but um, that's going to be a real hard, you know, really hard to to resist number wise. But also, hey, man, we're we're sports writers. We love narratives. We love the storylines. And Eric Carlson, the two-time Norris winner, goes into San Jose, has to wander in the wilderness with this terrible team. Injuries, you know, is he ever going to be the same? And then suddenly, if he comes back for a full season uh, and has a monster year, outscores everybody, you know, sets, uh, you know, not sets records, but sets highs for this this generation of players, for a guy that you know, people are already used to voting for the the, the idea that he's back and and he gets that third award. That's going to be tough for for a lot of us to resist. And you know, Kale McCarr is fantastic. Kale McCarr's had his Norris already. You know, he's he he got it real young. You know, maybe maybe a little bit of voter fatigue sets in. Um, I don't know. I I think four to one. I'd I'd be tempted at four to one. But here, okay, here's the thing. Last year, Roman Yossi flirted with 100 points, didn't win the Norris, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, so there's that part of me that thinks that, yeah, I think voters have moved past, as you said, Sean, that that era where they would just sort by points. Uh, I think this is going to be this is going to be a really compelling race. Like of all the trophies, in fact, I think this is going to be the best race because I think there's Josh Morrissey in Winnipeg, there's Adam Fox, uh, there, 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 there's like five guys that you can make a legitimate case for 
for winning the Norris Trophy. I think Carlson would have to outscore all the other defensemen by like, we're talking like kind of like what McDavid would do to the forwards. I think Carlson would have to do that for defensemen in order to potentially be the Norris Trophy winner. That's what I know. Uh -huh. I think we saw it last year with Roman Yossi. He was okay, but the point leader, but didn't quite. Uh, and yeah, that, but let me let me say feeling. this. He, he Roman Yossi did flirt with with 100 points. He finished with 96. Kelmacar had 86. Victor Hedman had 85. So Rome, yes, Roman Yossi was you know, putting up those great numbers, but he didn't run away with it to the extent that that Eric Carlson feels like he is now. And even given that, Roman Yossi got more first place votes than Kelmacar, right? Uh, by by a you know by by a few. Like it wasn't uh, super close. So, um, you know, the, the, the points didn't power him all the way, but, uh, it was, it was an extremely close vote. Uh, and that was with 96 points. Somebody gets, I mean, Eric Carlson's on pace to go north of a hundred. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we got half a season to go, but if he gets to a hundred points, I, Put it this way, I think he's got much more than a the twenty percent chance that those four to one odds imply. Right to to your point, Ian, about being the closest race, uh, the odds also reflect that. They've there are five defensemen with less than ten to one odds to win the Norris, so uh, that's the only award that I can see on here that's got five different candidates under ten to one. So it's it, it is it's it's the closest race amongst the trophies. And and then when we look at uh, the goaltending situation and the Vesna Trophy. Uh, that's another race that, I mean, it could be really good. I think that you, you, you look at what Boston's doing and the Islanders are doing with Sorokin and, and, um, you know, some of the goaltending around the league has been really good, but UC Saros is an interesting name. Had the 60, whatever, 64 save performance against Carolina, followed that up with a, sh a 38 save shutout in Ottawa. I know he lost, uh, Wednesday night against Toronto, but I mean, UC Saros is putting together, a very good season and uh, was a finalist last year for the Vesna. Um, people were talking about him as a heart guy. Where's UC Saros on the uh, the Vesna radar right now? Yeah, he was another one that really surprised me. Um, I love watching UC Saros play. He is is like I every night I turn on and I'm looking for which goalies I want to play. He's he's at the top of the list right now. He's the shortest starting goalie in the entire NHL. Yeah. Um, he's five he's five eleven, which basically <laughs> in nowadays like goaltending. Sphere five eleven, you might as well be four feet tall. Um, I like mm -hmm. the fact that he's even made it to the NHL at five eleven. That a, that a coach would even give him the chance to uh, step on the ice is amazing. He's one of the best goalies in the league at that height. Where while every other goalie is like six four or taller, um, and it's because his footwork is so good. I was watching on TNT the the, the Toronto game, and Lundqvist gave such a great breakdown. Get more of Lundqvist on the broadcast for for me and all the goalie nerds out there. Uh, Lundqvist was spectacular with the uh, with the like on stage breakdown of Saros's play. But uh, yeah, he's he's been spectacular lately. And when you look at his stats um, in terms of goals saved above average, goals saved above expected, he's basically second in every stat. And he's either second to Linus Olmark or to Ilya Sorokin in basically every one of those stats. So I figured he's probably going to be second or third on the Vezina Trophy odds. And it's not even close. I was shocked. He is eighth. He is the eighth goalie wow. on the odds right now. He's below Peter Kochetkov in Carolina, which blows my mind. He's 30 to one. UC Saros is currently 30 to one to win the Vezina. Olmark is plus 140. 
Ilya Sorokin is three to one. Hellebuck's three and a half to one. Igor Shesterkin is eight to one. And then you've got UC Saros below them. Ottinger, Vasilevsky, and Kachetkov all the way down at 30 to one. And I don't know if... So, so in order for Saros to win the Vezina, it's going to take a lot bigger effort than it will for Olmark. Olmark is... I'm not trying to take away from Olmark, but his job is easy. He's playing behind the best team in hockey. He's not facing the most high danger chances every single time down the ice. He, it's easier for him to maintain this pace than it is for Saros, who's playing behind a much worse team that gives up more dangerous chances. And last night, he played a great game against Toronto and lost. Um, and we know that voters are going to look at wins and losses at the end of the season. So I definitely don't think Saros is the favorite, but to have him at 30 to one at this point in the season where we're halfway through the year, he's basically <laughs> the second best goalie in the league statistically. And by the way, you mentioned how good he's been lately. Over the last 20 games or so, Saros has been the best goalie in the league, and it hasn't been close. Um, he's got 24.9 goals saved above expected in the last 20 games. That's 11.7 better than the next closest goalie. Like, we're talking 150% the number of the next closest goalie in the league. So, right now, he's the best goalie in hockey. He's over the season, he's the second best. That suggests that maybe if, if he keeps this up, he'll run away with it. But the fact that he's 30 to 1 is crazy to me. Yep. No, I, I agree. And it's the GMs who vote on it, and they do love their wins. Um, but they love workhorses, too. And he's leading the league in, in shots faced right, right now, uh, close to leading the league in games played. And let's remember, he was a finalist last year. He finished third. So it's not like he's a new name to these these GMs who vote. It's not like, you know, they're they're not willing to put his name down. They did last year. Um again, I'm 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 with you. Favorite? No. Maybe not even in my top two or three as as far as favorites right now, but 30 to 1. I'd be awfully tempted if I was the sort to put a couple of bucks down on that. Man. Yeah. That that that's fascinating to me. 34 to, to one for a guy who, like you said, last six weeks or so might be the best goaltender in the uh, the entire NHL. Jesse Granger, as always, great to have you drop by for a little Granger things. Um, I'm sure you're going to get inundated with a forklift and Spanish uh, mentions in the, on the Twitter feed. So, uh, yeah, if anybody needs forklift, I'm tips, here to help. You know, yeah, Granger's your guy. Thanks for having me, guys. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right. Always fun to uh, to catch up with Jesse Granger talking awards and whatnot. We'll open up the mailbag here. Actually, wait, before we open up the mailbag, I want to very quickly hit on this story, Sean, because the Islanders this week celebrated a franchise milestone at UBS Arena. 
they they welcomed in their one millionth fan. Okay, so the one millionth person okay. to attend an Islanders game walked through the doors Tuesday night at the UBS Arena. It was a woman by the name. Uh, let me get the name right here. Jennifer Balecto. Mm-hmm. She walks in. She scans her ticket. All of a sudden, uh, there's confetti, a drum line, mascots show up. They, they're like, hey, congratulations. You're the one millionth fan. She gets, it's pretty cool, okay? They get, they got a $5,000 shopping spree at the team store. They got a bunch, got a thousand lottery tickets, team signed jersey, tickets for future games. They got to sit with ownership in their private box, yada, yada, yada. But here's what I find fascinating, okay? And I'm going to read the, the quote here. Uh, from, uh, now who's the Islanders team president, uh, John Ledecky. Okay. He's co-owner. Okay. Mm-hmm. John Ledecky says, we knew we were coming up to the millionth fan. We tried to plan for this and you don't know who it's going to be. Is it going to be an Islanders fan? Is it going to be somebody who's rooting for the other team? <laughs> You're crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Now, can we just admit here that if the millionth fan walked in and he or she was wearing a Rangers jersey, they're yeah. not showering them with confetti, right? Like I'm just they, picturing somebody they, coming up in like a John Tavares Leafs jersey. Yeah. And it, the siren starts to go. So somebody just puts their hand on it like, no, that's no. Uh, there's no, no, there's no. no way. Yeah, there's there's no way that's gonna uh that's gonna fly. I hope. I hope they I mean I'm this is one of those things where look, I'm all for, you know fair play and all of that stuff but you got to rig some stuff and yeah you you are absolutely within your rights i'm always fascinated by this stuff when when somebody wins something like that where they're you know chosen randomly but randomly based on the order because you know there was there must have been somebody somewhere who was like oh no ma'am you go ahead and then the the alarm (laughs) goes off and they're just you know cash is falling out and then you punch your do i get anything for being a million and one no you get to go to your seat go yeah Go uh, get out of here. We're uh, we're trying to take uh, we're trying to take photos of number a million. That's yeah. that's you rough. Know, no, the Islanders have been around for fifty years. Mm-hmm. Does a million fans seem like a small number? Well, that's like, I, like I'm trying to do math in my head now and yeah, figure out. Uh, I guess. You, you I mean, know, I guess certainly they, they there were some some leaner years there attendance wise and uh, for various reasons, but it's still pretty cool. I mean, yes. Yeah. It's a good number to come up with, but uh, yeah, that's uh, I, I I guess congratulations to them. But yeah, that that had to have been right. There's there's yeah no way somebody's got to step in and uh, make sure that it's it's not uh, you know it's not uh, not the, the 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 wrong choice exactly. And look, as I mentioned, they got a great prize pack, including a uh, Islanders jersey. That says one millionth fan on the back, and it was autographed by the entire team. So very cool. And that actually brings us right into the mailbag, where we're going to talk about jerseys here in a second. Uh, reminder, you want to hit us up, you can reach us, the Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com or drop us a voicemail at 845-445-8459. Okay. So last week, Sean told the harrowing story of how he received the Craig Berube jersey. Uh, at Christmas in um, in 1991, only to have that uh, uh, jersey become invalid in the span of about two weeks when Baruby was traded to Calgary as part of the Doug Gilmore trade. Catherine yeah. from Connecticut has emailed into the show and says, first off, longtime reader and listener and first time emailer to the Athletic Hockey Show. Love the show. All uh, I had to say 
on the Barube thing in relaying this story to my husband, who's also a long-suffering Leafs fan, to make him laugh. What I really wanted to say, though, is don't feel bad here, Sean. My husband actually bought me a Henrik Lundqvist Capitals jersey for Christmas the year he was supposed to play for them. At Oof. least your guy hit the ice for the Maple Leafs. Keep up the good work. That's from Catherine in Connecticut. That's a tough one. Yep, that uh, that one is right there. I don't know if if the fact that Barube played a few games versus zero makes it better or worse, but that is uh, that's a bit of a rough one. Oh man! But at least probably like, should have probably should have tipped off the husband there, that they though. were they he were a discount. There. He he did. I mean, he signed. Yep, he was he Capitals property. Um, but he he never got into a game because of the uh, the heart issues and and I'm trying to remember the timing because that was around it was pre, like it, it it was not that wasn't a regular season right that it was, was that one COVID of the, that was delayed year, right? so it yeah. was uh, it would have been uh, yeah, I'm picturing the husband walking and oh it's a ninety percent off on uh, this Lundquist guy all right <laughs> I'll pick that up yeah. but uh, no the timing the timing would have been a little bit rough on that one yeah no it's uh, you know it. it you know that you see some people, in fact, I've seen them, people have Shane Wright Habs jerseys, right? Uh-huh. People thought that the Habs, once they got the first pick, they went see, ahead that's and on Shane. you. That's that, on exactly. you. You're getting ahead of yourself there. You can't be, you can't be doing that. And, uh, you know, you, you do see it sometimes where guys, that, the, the other thing is, is sometimes people, you know, they, they get the player, but they guess wrong on the number. You, you figure someone's going to wear the same number they wore last year and then they, uh, they, they switch it up on you. So that's, uh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta watch out for those players. So remember, you, were you in Vancouver when uh, Pavel Bure changed? Or it was yeah, going to change from 96. ten to ninety six, and that was a yeah. big thing. I remember Doug Gilmore at one point uh, was going to switch from ninety three to ninety four for the Leafs, as you know, when the when the year kicked over, and it was some. I, I think there was it may have been it was some charity or marketing thing, but a lot of fans were like, uh, "Hey, we uh, we just spent a lot of money on this jersey. How about you don't do that?" And, did talk him out of it. So that, that can be rough. Oh man. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Shane Wright there. We got a question in here um, from Dan in Grand Rapids, uh, who says, my friends and I are talking about Shane Wright uh, being assigned to the OHL. And uh, we're curious here about NHL compensation. Are the Seattle Kraken uh, paying him while he's playing for Windsor in the OHL that comes in from Dan in Grand Rapids, who adds, thanks for all the great content. So, the way it works uh, essentially is this. Once you're in the OHL, you can't be uh, paid. Uh, you do get, it's a small stipend, Sean. Like, mm -hmm. and it's really small. Like it's, it might be a thousand dollars over the course of an entire year, like something like that. And it's basically, um, they don't fall under, there's like an employment standards act, but basically players in the OHL have an amateur status. So they don't mm -hmm. receive like a standard salary, but they do get, uh, obviously they get room and board with their, um, uh, you know, billet family. I know the organizations take care of, you know, education, transport, all that stuff. I think it's a thousand dollars that they get over the course of the year. So really it's, it's nothing, but Shane Wright, when he was in the NHL, obviously got paid up till the, whatever he played the eight games, nine games. But the minute you get returned to junior hockey, you don't get, your salary. Okay. So, so that's, yeah, that, and that's interesting because a lot of us, you know, we just talk about, well, should he be back in junior? What's best for the development? That sort of thing. It's got to be at least a little, I mean, Shane Wright will do fine over the course of his career, but when you're 18 years old, 
uh, and every it's gotta two be weeks. tough going from yeah every two weeks getting that that nice big paycheck and now you're back and does he have to does he have to bill it again is he like uh has he got some billet mom telling him to make his bed and oh my gosh can you imagine you go from the nhl you're, you're like at the ritz carlton mm-hmm. or the four seasons where and now you're at a billet home in windsor yeah you're like hey shane by yep. the way breakfast is between 8 and eight twenty. that's it yep that's yeah that's <laughs> exactly the breakfast time. yeah and you're on dishwashing duty today and you're just sitting there watching your Solovsky highlights going oh my god <laughs> I wonder how much of that money he banked. You know, he made, I, what was he up for eight games? So, yeah. Yeah. So, he would. <laughs> you know, I'm sure we could pro four rat, months. rate it. Yeah. Yeah. He'll, he'll be okay. But he, he'll he, be was okay. On the, he was on the roster for for longer than that, though. So he'd be, yeah. Uh, you get paid. He'd be doing, be- roster, he'd be doing you're, better. You're getting well. NHL money. Yeah. There you go. Let me read one more email that comes in from uh, either, I, and I think this might be Mikhail or Michael from Finland. M I K A E L. Are we going Mikhail? On that one? Uh, you know what? You're the pronunciation guy. It's, you, I've already, Wait, is it you pronunciation heard, you, or you pronunciation? Heard, you, you heard what I just said about <laughs> Slavkovsky, so yeah. don't uh, – yeah. I'm not I'm not putting myself out there anymore from the pronunciation police. You're, yeah. you're on your own. Okay. Mikhail from Finland writes in. Uh, first of all, Mikhail says, love the serious tone that you guys take, which I think – I know. I think, I think he's joking. Uh, they, no, they, they, get, they get sarcasm yeah. in Finland. But Mikhail writes, in, since the Coyotes <laughs> are one of the teams that haven't played an outdoor game, I'm going to throw an idea at you guys. What about this? It's the Arizona Coyotes Winnipeg Jets outdoor game in, wait for it, Atlanta. This way we could create a little bit more chaos, debate, and confusion, whatever you want to call it, about the statistics of these two, or is it one, franchise yay or nay love the show mikhail from finland yeah uh yes you know what i i like the chaos to it it's uh would you do coyotes jets in atlanta or, or do you have to get the flames in there too as the uh to get the as atlanta oh, being all the, the teams are the, the only market tournament. that's lost twice yeah um that could be that could be a tough one. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Atlanta hockey fans would really love to see the Coyotes up close. And, you know, maybe Gary Bettman could give a little speech about how, uh, you know, he, he refuses to even consider moving the Coyotes because it's just so important to him that we have franchise stability and all of that. And I think that would be a lot of yeah. fun. Imagine um, that he goes a long yeah, speech could, and then he's like, uh, anywho, here on Yeah, <laughs> anywho, here we go. Yeah, and then we get yeah, more, more of that stupid confusion where we're supposed to, you know, the, the who's who holds the record for goals by a winger by a by a Winnipeg Jet? Oh, did you say Timo Solani? No, no, I'm sorry, he holds the Coyotes record. Uh, it was uh, Ilya Kovalchuk is actually who we're looking for for the Winnipeg. Yeah. Get out of here with this. Get out of here. I, like, yeah, the Jets are the Jets. That's it. I've been very clear on this from from the get go, and I've never had anyone in Winnipeg push back. I've never had. One fan from Winnipeg be like, no, actually, we we really want to claim that uh, uh, that Thrasher's history. No, exactly. All right, let's wrap up the show like we always do with a little this week in hockey history on Thursday. Uh, let's go back to 1976, uh, the 11th of January, precise. The Philadelphia Flyers uh, defeated the Soviet Red Army. They were touring in North America for about three weeks. Red Army comes over. They play the Flyers. Philadelphia wins 4-1. That game is memorable for, uh, I guess, a young Bob Cole mm-hmm. going on the broadcast and saying, they're going home. They're, they're going, going home. home. So the Flyers are running around doing what the Flyers are doing in the mid-70s, which is using mm-hmm. physical 
and kind of intimidation tactics, the Red Army basically pulls themselves off the ice. Now, here's my question for you. As I was reading the NHL.com recap of the game on this date in NHL history, there's no mention that the Red Army left the ice in protest due to the Flyers' rough tactics. Is this some selective editing? Like, what, like yeah. what happened here? Like, that's a that's a crucial element to the story, isn't it? That's, I mean, that is the story, really. Yes. I mean, that's that's why that game is remembered today. Uh, but it, I'm not shocked. I mean, the NHL.com does tend to uh, sometimes shy away from some of the more controversial or, you know, physicality, violence, that sort of thing. You know, it's not rare to see a game these days. We don't see a ton of fighting, but if if, if there is a game that has a few scraps where they, they just forget to mention that. Uh, or gloss over it. So I'm I'm not completely shocked, but you would think you'd you'd find a way to at least at least mention it because that is the part that everybody remembers is the uh, the Soviets walking off the ice and uh, and Bob Cole uh, just just giving it to him from the broadcast booth. Yeah, yeah. So that January 11th, 1976. One other this uh, week in hockey history. We're going to go ten years after that. Same date, the 11th of uh, January, 1986. Marcel Dion becomes the first player in NHL history to record 20 goals in each of his first 15 seasons in the NHL. I got to tell you, as we're counting down NHL 99, uh, I feel like Marcel Dion is often overlooked in NHL mm -hmm. history. And I know we, we, we don't have to tell people where uh, Dion is going to land, but you, if I'm not mistaken, you did the story on Marcel Dion. I did. Yep. Okay. And, and uh, that's going to be coming so out soon. Coming up. Uh, Cause we're, we're to, to give people a sense. We're up to 22. Brett Hall was 22. Uh, or down to 22, I guess. Yeah, we just passed uh, Timu Solani at 23 and Brett Hall at 22. Okay, so I have only one question for you. Mm -hmm. In your Marcel Dion piece that is going to run at some point in the next little bit, at any point, do you refer to his longtime nickname of being the Little Beaver? That's not a real nickname. That I, I'm dead. Was that look, look up. Where are you getting that from? Go, Google. Well, I, I would tell you Google Little Beaver, but maybe just Google yeah. Marcel Dion nickname. <laughs> if you're, yeah, I might do that. Okay, <laughs> okay, that was yeah. his nickname. Like okay. I feel like enough people don't know that. No, I. Well, I did. Oh, look at that. The Little Beaver. Okay. Well, That's I mean, now I got to rewrite the. I got to rewrite the whole article. Yeah, so the whole thing. I got to go because I have a lot of time to get this thing out. But it's yeah. uh, we're. Get me rewrite because uh, it's now going to be uh, just nothing but uh, 2,000 words on Little Beaver. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So we're, 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 we're learning things here. I think that might be, of all the nicknames in hockey history, that's the one that you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't think they Got can bring that one. Got his Little Beaver nickname during his junior career due to resemblance to a pro wrestler. Oh, that's okay. I See, and I... I I know which wrestler was Little Beaver, and I don't. Uh, okay, that's. I'm not going any further with that, but uh, okay. Well, I. Uh, I feel like we could have given him a new nickname at some point, but you know what? He got. He had the triple crown. He was part of the the one of the all time great line nicknames. Um, yeah, that overshadows with the Kings. His personal nickname. Well, I would have thought it did, but maybe not because now I'm. Uh, I don't know what to think. Like I say, I'm. I'm tearing. I'm tearing it up, and I'm. Uh, I'm starting over again. But um, but think on, about on like, the Marcel Dion piece. If you look at like the greatest players of all time in in terms of their 
points and look, like look at the all-time you know Gretzky was the great one Mario's the magnificent one Gordie Howe is Mr. Hockey and then there's the little beaver yeah like why do you think this guy gets overlooked and overshadowed we just didn't give him a great nickname obviously if he had been the medium-sized beaver he we would yeah, have uh we would have noticed him more the, but this is size. yeah that's uh that's a rough one for yeah. Marcel Oof. okay well okay I learned something today there we go all right, we'll leave it there. Hopefully uh, the listeners learned something today, had a little bit of fun. We want to thank everybody for listening to this Thursday edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. You can always email us. Your questions to The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 845-445-8459. Right now you can get a one-year subscription to The Athletic for $2 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show.